0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Brenda and I have uh, been away. We were in San Diego this last week. Uh, we were uh, enjoying the, the last meeting of the One Project, the last gathering for the One Project. Um, it would be interesting to see what, what comes next. Um, it is a, a, a loss personally for me. Um, the One Project has been an inspirational opportunity from year to year. Um, of the seven that have been, that they've done, I've been to about five of them. Um, I don't know how many of you know about it, heard about it, any, have any information about it. The One Project's basic mission was to, to reveal that Christ is central to the Adventist church. And that he always has been. And uh, to just, uh, I think, as, to put it in theological terms, to raise the value of our Christology over our theology. Now, you can't really separate Christology from theology because the, the study of Christ is the study of God. But to recognize the centrality of who Jesus is, that uh, in the Millerite movement from whence came the Adventist church, they were waiting for... Jesus to come they weren't waiting for their math in Daniel to work out It was nice that it did or they hoped that it would but that wasn't what they were waiting for They were weeping because he didn't come not because their math didn't work out And I just to recognize the significance and the the importance of Christ in the midst of who we are that as uh, Was stated in uh a minister, uh, testimonies to minister. Every sermon, every doctrine presented must find at its center Jesus Christ. That's what it was all about. And I'm going to miss that because to be recentered on an annual basis, they would have about uh, ten people speak. They'd speak for twenty or thirty minutes, and then you'd have a ten-minute time at your table to talk about that. It's a really good model for uh, for spiritual growth because that that time after hearing a message to talk with people around the table, usually about eight people, um, is also quite powerful because people will bring you insights you didn't know of, you didn't hear of before, and all of a sudden you go, oh, I hadn't thought about that from the same sermon that you just listened to, and uh, it's like having a devotional on top of a sermon. It was, it's a pretty good thing. Um, We enjoyed San Diego, although the weather here was better. It actually sprinkled a little bit down there. It was in the mid to to low 60s most days, kind of chilly. And so uh, we we left here, it was 72, got there, it was 64. So, you know, for all those folks who say, oh, no, the best weather in America is San Diego. Well, not last week. It was probably Sacramento. Anyway, we're glad to be home. We always miss miss you when we're not available or not able to be here. Uh, One of the great blessings we had during the time we were there is um, we got together with um, eight of our friends from seminary. I know it's hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since I graduated from seminary. I know, I'm only 38, so how did I do that? <laughs> but in that in that intervening 30 years, we just had an opportunity to, to get together with those people that we went to school with and uh, some who were particularly close with and just catch up, talk about how things had gone, how ministry had gone, what life had brought up and down. And uh, we ate good food together and shared laughter and fun and took pictures of our, of our old selves to match up with the pictures of our young selves that some folks brought along. Um, so it was, a, it was a really good time, high time all the way around. And uh, we were particularly blessed this last week um, with the presence and blessings and grace of God. Um, today... Because I wasn't here last week, I have extra things to cover. I have 28 verses to cover in the next couple hours. <laughs> so, put on your, uh, your hat, turn up your hearing aid, because here we go. Today I want to take you into a passage that we were in last fall. We, went, we started in July through August and September into Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Tim has kind of picked up a couple of those places. But um, in particular, we skipped over some of these portions between Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 and verse 48. See, I told you, 28 verses. I can do minor math. Here's the point. Here, here's one of the pieces I want you to take away from. There is no cruel, cruelty worse than that of religious piety. There is no cruelty worse than that of religious piety. It's like a, it's like a, a, a one-two punch. Cruelty on its face is tough, but when it's cruelty from a person you can discount, when you when it's cruelty from a person to whom you can just discredit, you can just say, oh, I don't. That, That person, I expect that of them. But when it's cruelty on top of religious piety, it's cruelty from a person you expect better things from. It's cruelty from a person that you expect better things from. I don't know if it's ever hit you that way, if you've ever had that sort of one-two punch of somebody coming at you in the name of God in cruelty. There is no cruelty worse than the cruelty delivered with the follow-up right hook of religious piety. And I want to walk through that business today as we walk through this passage. I'm going to pick you up where we started. I want you to recognize as we're in Matthew chapter 5, it's been a while and I did not wear my tie-dye shirt, so I don't expect you to remember everything we've covered, but We started in Matthew chapter 5 talking about Jesus as this non-compliant guy. This person who would stick out in his culture, in his society. That he he was a different sort. But he starts this sermon in a very particular way that the people would recognize. They would understand what's going on when one day Jesus saw the crowds gathering. He went up the mountainside like Moses. And he sat down. Remember, remember, important legal commentary is done ex cathedra, out of the seat. Still done that way. We still hear this, that papal bulls are delivered ex cathedra, out of the seat. It's like being on the throne. So he goes up the hill and he sits down. It's very, very ancient traditions. Kings and princes and leaders would sit in the seat of authority before they would give their, their judgments. Here's that same experience. He goes up the mountain and he sits down. And when he goes up the mountainside and sits down, the whole group goes, Oh, we're about to hear something important. His disciples gathered around him. So the inner circle is the twelve. And he began to teach who? Then. Those immediate disciples with the onlooking congregation of Who knows? He begins to direct and give guidance to those gathered, specifically centered on those 12 closest to him, from the seat on the hillside. This looked like a moment of great authority. Jesus set it up to look like a moment of great authority. So we talked about the the delivery of, of those awesome statements. that we, we call them the Beatitudes, remember? And I said these things should start out how awesome it is or how fantastic it is. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, just the first one, it's fantastic when you realize your true poverty is spiritual because the kingdom of heaven will be given to you. How amazing it is when you realize that your real poverty is spiritual because then you'll be open for the delivery of the kingdom of heaven into your life transformative things happen when you recognize your need. And Jesus will go through the Beatitudes and set up a different understanding of the world than they had been taught by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. There was a certain element to the world, a certain design to the world that they had been taught. And the design that they were specifically being taught was be good, God will be good to you. Be bad, you're going to have trouble. And you see it through the text all the time. Remember, we talked about this just recently. The disciples come to Jesus. There's a a person born blind, and they go to Jesus and say, who caused this, him or his parents? Did he sin in utero, or did his parents do something that caused him to be blind? And they present the question because in their theological understanding, in their cosmological understanding, in their understanding of who God was and how the universe worked, if you did good things, good things happened. If you did bad things, bad things happened. So if you were born blind, somebody did something real bad. And Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He moves right on and we'll get on. That's not our text today. So, But I want you to understand that the, the The body politic, the body understanding, the cultural religion of the day. It's not all that different from ours. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, well, you know, the reason you didn't get an answer to your prayer, cruelty delivered with piety, the reason you didn't get an answer to the prayer for healing is because um, your life isn't really right with God. Or you didn't do it right. Or you didn't have enough faith. If this prayer had been delivered correctly from the heart of true morality, then certainly you would have gotten the answer. Right? Our own cultural religion is a religion that says if you do good, you'll get good. And if you do poorly, you'll get bad things. Same, 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 same. And I would bet for most of us, down deep inside, there's a seed of this growing. You've, you, put, you put weed killer on it, you've tried digging it out, you've pulled off all the leaves, you've tried cutting it down, but that thing just keeps popping up. It just keeps trying. It's like the dandelion in the, in the green lawn of your heart. It just keeps popping out of there and trying to spread. Because we have this idea as part of our sinful code, our internal sinful writing. This is what Jesus is speaking into. From up the hill, in a seated position, with that family around him, that inner court, the king's court gathered closest in. He teaches quickly to the disciples, and I'm going to make a short work of this, I hope. Be spiritually like salt that quietly penetrates the situation. You know, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to be quietly in some of those situations, just penetrating like salt, just just kind of moving through it all. This is that picture that people use, that idea that you, you should preach all the time. Wherever you go, whatever you do, should always be preaching, and whenever necessary, you should use words. But your life should constantly be an influence around you, like salt spreading through the dish. Slowly, quietly, penetrating everything around you. Secondly, he said you should also be like bolt, like light, that boldly rele- reveals the way through the darkness. You should be in some situations this quiet salt that moves through, and in other situations you should be like a candle in the dark. You should be like a light that shines out in a dark place. These are the calls of the disciples, and then the motivation. The next piece is the motivation. So you know for that for that 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 balanced theory that if I do good things, I get good things, right? The motivation should be and you'll get good stuff. You will have an awesome life and you will be blessed your whole life. That should be the next line. But Jesus doesn't say it. His next line is so folks will praise your father in heaven. You should influence things positively and quietly sometimes and you should be boldly shining into the dark sometimes so that God can be praised all the time. We could stop there, but I'm not going to. Then comes the big warning. We don't read this one carefully enough. We don't take this one seriously enough. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of of religious law, that's the scribes, and of the Pharisees, you will never enter... The kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is better than the Super Bowl champions of religiosity, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven because there's no door at the end of the road they're traveling. The scribe's job was to figure out all of the implications of the law of God. Every possible way where the law of God could be, could be translated into present life and applied to your day, that was their job. Figure it out and teach you about it. The laws of God as written in the commandments are broad and, and, and amazing principles. Their job was to take those principles, break them down into bite-sized pieces and say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And God will be okay with you. They were the ones who were to to bring the instruction into your daily life. This is how this thing is going to work for you. Do it this way, you'll be good with God. And you will have blessings. Don't, and you will have curses. Everybody's trying to avoid the curses. So they're going about the things the way these guys say it should be done. And the Pharisees, they're the practitioners. They're the ones who demonstrate what the scribes are teaching. Those are the guys who walk the walk. I mean, they're doing it the best of their ability. Paul talks about himself being a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a guy who knew all the rules and kept all the rules. That's the deal. God will take care of you. God will bless you. God will even like you if you do the right thing. Let your righteousness be greater greater than that of the champions of religiosity or you're not getting into the kingdom. This part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount throws the entire group into a fit. Their entire religious world just tipped and everything that they thought they knew spilled out and they're left with an empty vessel waiting for somebody to explain what just went on. So Jesus begins. Well, let me fin- let me let me finish my conversation about these guys. My problem, my bad. In essence, these people are truly self-righteous. Truly self-righteous. They had figured out a way to make God save them. They believed that they would be saved if their good deeds outweighed their bad deeds. All they had to do was do enough good things in their life to overweight the scale, and they get in. Think about how often we practice the same kind of religion. Think about how often that's how we think about our behaviors and about our choices. I just have to do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff, and then I'll be in. Then I'll be okay. That's paganism. That's how paganism works. I will manipulate the behavior of God by my behavior. That is paganism. It is, the, it is the religion that God had called them out of. It is a religion that he's calling us out of. Paganism is the religion our heart chases after. God is calling our heart to a different kind of faith, to a belief that he knows what he's doing. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. Stop for a second. Who told them that? Hmm. The rock star of all spiritual rock stars. Moses himself. He had gone up on the mountain as Jesus had gone up on the mountain. And when he came back to talk to them, he spoke for God. In reality, if you read the passage carefully, these words were delivered actually by the voice of God, written on stone by the finger of God twice, because Moses broke the first set, remember, a little too much partying going on when he got back, maybe a lot too much. These are words delivered by God or by Moses, whichever you want to say. These are are like the essence of the essence of the essence of what you should be doing with your life, right? You shall not murder. Jesus has said, you have heard in the past that you're not supposed to murder. If you commit murder, you will be subjected to judgment. But I say... You should not kill people. But I have something else to say about that. We don't want you murdering people. But I say, Moses told you not to kill people. God told you not to murder people. But I say, do you see the contrast being drawn? He's gone up the hill like Moses, he sat down and drawn the court around him and he begins to speak. And one of the things he says is, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder, but I have another thing to say about that to you. I have something else to say to you about this. I say. He's not claiming the authority of anyone else. He's simply claiming his own authority. I say. I stand above Moses and I speak on behalf of God right now. Do you get it? So when you're reading these passages, you, got, you have to get that, but I say. It's a very strong statement in the Greek. It's a very powerful, it's like a, a really a projecting tremendous authority. You know what that says. You know that was delivered by Moses and God. But I have to say something about that, that I have the right to say. But I say, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to, to judgment. You've heard that if you kill someone, you're subject to ju- judgment. I'm telling you, if you get mad at someone, you're subject to judgment. Now the whole crowd glanced at their neighbors to see they looked as uncomfortable as they felt. I'm feeling really uncomfortable with this. How do you guys feel? Did you hear what he just said? He just said he speaks better than Moses. and If we get angry, trouble. I did that this morning. In fact, I just did it again when he said that. (laughs) Moses said, don't kill people. I say, if you're angry with people, it's on the same place. Think about it. Think about it. If you consider this a continuum, and at the end of that continuum continuum is someone getting killed, where does it start? You know what Jesus is saying? Don't even enter into the continuum that leads to that. To begin it is to reach out and touch it. Don't even start down that path. Don't even be angry don't even get started with this. And he goes on to describe a couple of other things. He goes on to say, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell. Fire. You know what that calling a person a fool is? It's to disdain them. It's to just disdain them. They're less than a human. Disdain them. It's brush them off as if they are Subpar. They're beneath me. They're beneath you. They're beneath talking to. They're just a fool. And it's a disdainful way of treating another human being. He says, man, don't go there. Don't let yourself enter into this. Moses says, don't murder. I say, don't get angry and don't be disdainful of your brother. Everybody thinks Jesus is kind of whitewashing over. Everything, Yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible. The Bible just told me I can't even be angry. You heard the commandment said, you should not commit adultery. Who said that? Moses. And if you're paying attention, the voice of God himself. But I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman, and if we were writing this today, he would say, or a man, with lust has already committed adultery in in his or her heart. We're stepping into some difficult difficult realms of religiosity here, aren't we? Because Jesus isn't just talking about what my hands are doing. He's talking about what my head and my heart are doing. Now we're getting serious about this spiritual thing. Spirituality that I can just paint on the outside, well, that's one thing. But spirituality that has to change what's going on on the inside, that's a different story altogether. And Jesus says, you guys don't understand. What I'm telling you today is what all of that was about. You see, the Pharisees taught that you could hate anybody you wanted. In fact, it was almost a a matter of national pride to hate the Romans. It was okay to hate somebody like that. To be angry with what was going on. These were bad people doing bad things and it was okay to be mad. And Jesus said it's not. They taught... That it really wasn't what your heart and your, and, and your mind were saying that was important. It was what you actually acted on. That was the problem. It was the things you acted on. So it didn't matter what leering looks you gave. It was what you did that mattered. Does this, does this make modern America just as, ner- uh, as unnerved as it did ancient Israel? If it doesn't, the next one will. He applies this one specifically now. And he says, You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Notice the woman has no rights because the woman is a thing. She is a possession. She is not a person. And as a possession, you can just get rid of her, like tossing out your old shoes. In fact, it's probably easier than tossing out your old shoes. You simply write a note that says, I release you from this marriage signed Jimmy Bob. You get two friends to come stand by while you hand the letter to her and she's done. That's it. You think getting a divorce is easy in America today? Getting a divorce divorce in the first century, both in the Roman and Greek society and in the the Jewish society, was so easy, the whole concept of marriage had an opportunity there to go away. Because women had no rights and men kicked them to the curb. Then Jesus goes on to say, and notice where the blame is placed here. I say to you that a man who divorces his wife who sends her this little piece of paper, who just kicks her to the curb like this, unless uh, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. Who is responsible for her adultery? The guy who kicked her to the curb. Do you see it? He said, you've totally disrespected a human being whom I love. What are you doing? Do you get the application from the previous one to this one? See, I told you this would make you even more uncomfortable. Most of us are engaged in some manner in this, coming from families that have been broken up, coming from divorced family. My family was divorced and remarried. Many of us have done it, have been part of divorce and remarriage ourselves. And we read this passage, we're like, oh, man, now where do I go? The standard Jesus sets here is the top rung. There is no place to surpass the standard of behavior being requested of you. This is the top rung. Don't even start with angry. Don't even start with lust. He raises the bar to the top rung. You see, the religious society had thought they had this wired. They had lowered the bar till they could easily step over it without breaking a sweat. They just kept lowering the bar till it was comfortable for them. And they could just walk right over it and claim piety. And claim religious piety. Oh, look at me how spiritual I am. I haven't murdered this guy I hate. Oh, look how look how wonderful I am. I haven't behaved on the fact that I've been lusting after this girl for days. Isn't that crazy? Is it unusual? He continues trying to tear this false piety down. You've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. If you make a vow, you got to keep your vow. If you make a promise, you got to keep your promise. You must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to what? What's the last phrase? To the Lord. You must carry out your vows you make to the Lord. Now catch this in the first century, they figured out how to get around that. There was a specific teaching about making vows. You don't swear by the Lord. I just got out of it. You can swear by the temple. You can swear by the earth. You can swear by the hair on your own head just for goodness sakes. Don't swear by God because you have to keep that vow. They had had found a place in the contract that they could squeeze out of. Don't swear by the Lord, because you can sneak out of a vow that doesn't swear by the Lord. Jesus said, just don't make vows. Just don't make vows at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't get all crazy about, I swear to you by the hair of my child, by the blood of my frowl. You in fact will get what I told I told you I would pay you, and then you don't pay the guy back because you say I didn't pay. I didn't promise. In the name of the Lord, I promise on the blood of my frow. Yeah, well, I'll divorce her, and you can have the blood of my frow. I don't care. And they're out. Great religion, huh? Familiar religion. Familiar religious practice. You ever found yourself looking for a loophole? Ever found one? Kind of kinda happy about it. Hard day at church. I didn't even wear a coat and tie. You have heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now imagine this is an occupied country and they hate the Romans. And they have back in the writings of Moses this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And in the back alleys when the Romans aren't listening and some Roman guard has slapped somebody around or demanded something of them, You carry my stuff. I have to go up to the temple. You walk with me at your stinking temple anyway. Carry my stuff. All the way up the hill, sweating as you carry 50 pounds of Roman armor. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I will pay you back for this get it? Do you see why Jesus is talking about this? He is boldly speaking into their culture and it's spilling into ours. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, slap them back. That's eye for an eye tooth for tooth, right? Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, slap them on the right cheek. Someone slaps you on the left cheek, slap them on the left cheek. That's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, give them the left cheek. Not one of my favorite passages. If you were taught what I was taught when you went to school, it's probably not one of your favorites either. You don't start fights, but you finish them. That was the rule. When I was a kid, my uncles told me, if you get beat up at school and I find out you didn't fight back, I will beat you up when you get home. Turn the other cheek. It's for weaklings. Is it really? Which is easier? To strike back? Or to give them your left cheek? I know it's easier for me. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Occupied nation. Romans milling about, charging taxes to them every time they pass go. Hate your enemies. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Hate your enemies. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Hate your enemies. Can you feel the political zealousness growing in them? Can you feel the political zealousness growing in you? Can you feel the political zeal and that, that face that you don't want to ever have to see on your television again? The next time that the news comes on with this person speaking, you can name the person, you get to choose which person it is. When this person's face pops up on your TV, the anger, the disdain for this person and what they believe rises up and you turn off the TV. Or... You yell at the TV, which is actually a little crazy. But have you felt it? Have you felt it? It, it, has, ar- it has arisen in our nation this concept of disdaining people we disagree with has become commonplace in our nation. There's a pot boiling in our country that is not unlike the pot that was boiling in the first century with the Roman occupation. It's crazy. We, do, we are not occupied by a foreign government. And yet, we have this, this cranky anger. We will believe absolute lies about the people we don't like. Right? Right? We will believe absolute lies. Stuff that if it was talked, if it if we're, if were about the people we liked, we would go, there's no way that's true. That's a crazy idea. But if it's about the people we don't like, well, I can see where he, she, it might do that. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of, they're kind of messed up people, those people. Those people can't be trusted. Those people. Them over there. Funny how this first century stuff applies, isn't it? Funny how it crawls through 2,000 years of time and drops in our lap today. Amazing how prescient Jesus' phrases on this hillside while he sat still preach today. I know as I walk through all of these, they hit me where I don't like to be hit. They come right home at me. I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. You've heard it was said. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those. Who persecute you? Who's persecuting them? The Romans. What did Jesus tell them to do about the Romans? Pray for the Romans. Okay, you guys. Love your neighbor. Love the Romans. Pray for the Romans. So now, application. You get to pick your party. Pray for the Republicans. Pray for the Democrats. Love your Republicans. Love your Democrats. Pray for your Democrats. Love your Democrats. Love your Republicans. Pray for your Republicans. Pick your side. And if you're the Green Party, you can, pick, you can pray for both sides. But you get the idea. You do not have the right as a follower of God to disdain the people he loves. We do not have the right as followers of God... To hate the people, he's trying to get to heaven. It's going to be a tough day in heaven when we hate our neighbor. You found out your neighbor voted for the wrong person, and oh my goodness, can I move? I need a different neighborhood. God, you put me in the Republican neighborhood. God, you put me in the Democrat neighborhood. I, I need to be moved. I, Lord God, I have a Green Party person next to me. You know how those people vote? Interesting, isn't it? When you start loving your neighbor and your enemy and praying for your persecutor, you'll be acting like two children of your father. So at the end of Jesus' coverage in these verses, My spirituality has holes all through it. How about you? I just feel like somebody opened up with one of those 1940s Tommy guns and just kind of shredded me. I got nothing left. He's come at me in my obedience. He's come at me in my attitude. He's come at me with what my eyes see what my heart does. He's come at my anger. He's come at my disdain. He's asking me to pray for people I don't even like. He's asking me to pray for people who have actually done bad things to me. Because if my righteousness doesn't measure up to be better than that of the Pharisees, there's no entry into the kingdom. better wrap this up before we all get to start crying. The Apostle Paul taught in the face of this reality that we each need to recognize in the holes that only Jesus can fill them. We need to recognize that we have gaps. The worry is that we won't even recognize we have gaps. The problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is they thought they had this wired. They thought they didn't have any holes in their sanctification. They thought they were good, that they were righteous, and they were bound for heaven, and it was sure because they had all the practices figured out. And Jesus just shot holes through their practices and said, look guys, you have a lot of gaping holes in your practice. You need Jesus. You need someone's heart changing in your heart. You need a transformational experience. You need somebody to cover your sins. The Apostle said that we needed the law as a schoolmaster to give us guidance so we would recognize our need of righteousness beyond ourselves. Romans chapter 7, 24 and 25. This is as Paul is describing himself as someone who wants to do good things and does bad things. The good things I want to do, I don't do. The bad things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me? What is going to happen to me? What an agonizing situation I am in. Who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? I give all my thanks to God for his mighty power, has finally provided a way out through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before Jesus becomes a band-aid that allows me to say, whew, Okay, I get to hate my aunt, my neighbor and I get to to despise the people who vote differently than me, I get to be disdainful and not care about people in my life. Before Jesus becomes a patch over bad behavior, can I say, Jesus is not a patch over bad behavior. Jesus is the gap filler. I give God everything I've got. Everything I got. Lord, I I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to do what you want. I want you to change my heart. I want you to change my attitude. I give him everything I have. And it's still not enough. And Jesus comes in. I'm not trying to teach you a different kind of legalistic behavior. I'm trying to say that God has set the bar so high higher than any human thought can imagine. Desire of Ages 311. He set the bar beyond our imagination and therefore way beyond our reach so that we will come to Him. But He doesn't want us to not care about the reputation of God and the transformation of our lives. He still challenges us to be more like Jesus every day. He still challenges us to be transformed by the relationship we have with Christ. He still challenges us to be the representatives of Him that the world will recognize as His. But He says, I know you're not going to reach the bar I said, Hold my hand. It's the hand that extends to heaven and grasps the earth. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much to be gained, so much to be confused about, so much to worry us in this passage. Help us to recognize the call on our lives to walk in faith that is transforming. It helps to recognize that a righteousness that is of my own building, of my own doing, is not righteousness. Help us to recognize that our only hope is Jesus. And to stand aware that following Him is going to be the most challenging thing we ever do. And follow Him anyway. Today we we were sinned our contract that has us making it on our own and we choose a contract signed in the blood of Christ where we've already made it justified sanctified while in the process of transformation God, we want to live a life that glorifies you. We want to walk the path that points the people around us to heaven. We are so far out of the norms we just read about. Help us to be closer at the end of this day than we are right now. Make us by the hand. May we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.